Welcome to episode 36 of the Montana Values Podcast. In this show, we'll talk about the real victims of the criminal justice system within the geographical center of Montana. Let's get right into the case with our host, Tammy Fisher. We're switching gears today to talk about the criminal justice system here in Montana. There's a recent criminal case that made the headlines from Lewistown, a great town in Montana that happens to also be the geographical center of Montana. Now, technically, the geographical center of Montana may be the King Colony Hutterite Ranch outside of Lewistown, but most of us Montana trivia junkies believe the center of Montana is Lewistown. And the folks in Lewistown recognize the Yogo Inn, a hotel in Lewistown, as the true geographical center, despite the fact that the state of Montana says otherwise. The true center, according to folks in Lewistown, and I'd say most of us Montanans, is literally marked on the floor of the Yogo Inn. So Lewistown is home to a population of very proud Lewistowners and Montanans. They are very community-oriented, and it's a pretty tight-knit community. Lewistown's population, at least in 2010, was 6,000, and for Montana, that's a pretty good mid-sized town. But in a town of 6,000, Everyone knows everyone, and most residents have been in Lewistown for generations. Lewistown began as a gold rush town after the gold rush folks just stayed. Because if you've ever been to Lewistown, you know it's scenic and quaint, surrounded by the big snowy mountains. It's just a really cool town. No town in Montana is immune from the ravages of child sexual abuse, not one. And Lewistown has been embroiled in a highly emotional and twisted child sex abuse case for over six years. I say Lewistown has been embroiled because truly the entire town was witness to the devastation that one child sex abuse case can have on a community. Six years ago, in March 2015, a young five-year-old girl went to her friend's house for a sleepover. She wasn't going to a stranger's house. She was going to a home she was familiar with because her family and her friend's family were longtime friends. Some say the families were best friends. And the two families lived less than three blocks apart. And the five-year-old girl, we'll call her Lena, attended the same daycare as her friends, the Tiranas girls. Sleepovers between these families occurred several times before March of 2015, and these two families are well-known in this town of 6,000 residents. Everyone in town knows both families. Lena's parents are local dentists, and the Tiranas' parents are nurses at the local hospital. After the sleepover, Lena reported to her mother that at the sleepover, she watched a movie with her friends and Jason Tarana's her friend's dad. She sat next to Jason. After the movie was over, Jason's wife, Dana, asked Lena if she wanted to go home. Lena apparently said no, she'd like to stay the night, so she did. When Lena got home, she complained of pain in her private area to her mother. Four days after the sleepover, Lena told her mom that during the movie at Jason's house, Jason put his hands in her pants and touched her privates. Lena's mom told Lena's dad, and they immediately contacted the local police, and on the same day, had Lena examined by her physician to determine if any evidence of sexual abuse existed. No biological evidence could be collected because that type of evidence must be collected in 72 hours. The examination found three to four discrete areas of injury, and that's a quote, to Lena's privates. Lena's physician diagnosed sexual abuse based upon the areas of injury and Lena's report. Law enforcement interviewed Jason's eldest daughter, who was nine years old at the time of the events. We're going to call her Andrea. Andrea initially reported it was her that sat next to Jason, not Lena. 
However, Andrea apparently rescinded that statement and said she lied to prevent Jason, who was her father, from getting in trouble. Despite this lie, no one in Jason's home witnessed the events as Lena relayed them. Jason's wife, however, pointed to Lena's uncle as a possible suspect because Lena's uncle had babysat her just a week prior to the sleepover. And Lena's mom had on occasion referred to Lena's uncle as a person who looked like a pedophile. Lena's mom said she was joking when she made that comment, however. After his police interview, Lena's uncle was cleared as a suspect. This raises an issue, though. Were all males in Lena's life cleared as suspects? We aren't sure, but they weren't charged. Lena has a brother that's two years older than her, and the only other guy in her life, it looks like, was her dad. On March 12th, a whopping week after the sleepover, Jason Taranis was charged with rape by digital penetration. The prosecutor who charged Jason is Jean Adams. Ms. Adams not only serves as a criminal prosecutor for Fergus County, she is also the head of human resources. So like every small town in Montana, you never hold one job, and county workers especially all wear multiple hats. Miss Adams graduated from Rutgers Law School, and by the time of this charge, she had been a prosecutor for eight years. I would guess that during that time, she prosecuted everything from a barking dog to a homicide, but it appears her passion was justice for child abuse victims. And Miss Adams was smart enough to bring in an expert on child abuse prosecution, Dan Gazinski, from the Attorney General's office. I know Gazinski from my work as a prosecutor in the Flathead County Attorney's Office. Dan is a lifer. He spent his entire legal career as a criminal prosecutor, and he has prosecuted more child abuse and homicide cases than virtually any other prosecutor in Montana. He takes on the most difficult of cases, including cases where the evidence is razor thin. He is able to piece together a common theme from the evidence he has, and what makes him a good prosecutor is that he tries cases other prosecutors wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. He doesn't seek a 100% conviction rate like many blowhard prosecutors proclaim. He seeks justice. And by the way, if you ever hear a prosecutor proclaim a 95% or 100% conviction rate, that is a sure sign that they are a horseshit prosecutor because prosecutors essentially have all of the power in the criminal proceedings and they get to dismiss cases as quickly as they file them. And a conviction is a plea. And a plea is a conviction. So you can try zero cases, plead them all out, or dismiss them and proclaim a 100% conviction rate. It's legal horseshit of the highest order. So don't pay attention when a prosecutor says that that's their conviction rate. Anyway, back to the case. Four days after the charges were filed, the judge on the case, John Oldenburg, recused himself. And that means that this judge backed out of the case. And he backed out not because he had a perceived conflict where maybe he knew too much about the families involved, but because he was confronted by Lena's dad at a local restaurant. I don't know what the confrontation was, but the initial judge apparently had some thin skin. He had only been on the bench as a judge for two years when the case was filed, so maybe he wasn't used to confrontation. And prior to becoming a judge, he was a local small-town Lewistown attorney, so maybe he didn't want to piss off the local dentist. This whole case is fraught with drama that had zero relationship to the evidence in the case, and mostly due to human behavior in a small town. So another judge, Judge Spaulding, takes over the case, and Judge Spaulding is known for his tough-on-crime stance. When another judge sentenced an admitted rapist to 31 days in jail, Spaulding came in and resentenced the guy to 10 years in prison. So he's the kind of judge that, as a prosecutor, you might be pleased to have. Spaulding was a prosecutor before he became a judge, and when he was elected judge in 2000, he was the youngest ever elected judge in Montana, 
at the ripe old age of 32. So yes, by 2015, with his background, Spalding would be the judge a new prosecutor would want on this case. Now, Jason initially hired a guy named Craig Bueller to represent him. Mr. Bueller was a local general practice attorney who also dabbled in criminal law. Not exactly who you might want representing you when you're fighting for your life. But small town attorneys have to do a little of everything to survive. And I'd guess Craig Bueller is a good general criminal defense attorney. But icky criminal defense where child abuse is alleged, you really got to have a specialist. I think either Bueller or Jason recognized this. And within a month, Bueller was off the case and Jeffrey Foster was in representing Jason. Jeffrey Foster was born and bred Montana and a whitefish kid, and he obtained his law degree from the University of Montana. As far as his criminal defense chops, his reviews were good. One lawyer commented, Quote, Jeffrey Foster is a talented lawyer and is a rising star in the legal profession. He is able to work with federal prosecutors, ensure that his clients' interests are met, and always does so with a smile on his face. Jeff is truly an asset to the legal profession. I have no doubt he will be for a long time. So that's the lineup, folks. Seasoned go-getters all the way around. Tireless prosecutors seeking justice. Young go-getter of a defense attorney and a no-bullshit, high-energy, honorable judge. So the first thing that Foster does and any good defense attorney would do is try to get the case the hell out of Dodge, meaning he tried to get the court to move the trial to a new town because all of Lewistown knew about the case and frankly became consumed with it. Lena's family was blasting about the case on social media and began a concerted effort to make their concerns known, apparently beginning with confronting the first judge assigned to the case. And that confrontation must have been so bad that the judge decided to step down from the case. Recognizing that his client, Jason, was not likely safe in Lewistown based upon the recent confrontation events and public statements made by Lena's parents, Foster asked the new judge, Spalding, to move the case to neutral ground. Spalding basically said, suck it up, we're not moving. And Foster did what you would want your defense attorney to do if you're in this kind of trouble, ask the court to order the release of Lena's medical records to you. This request is part and parcel of what a good defense attorney does in child abuse cases. But it appears this request caused great offense to Lena's parents, even though Judge Spalding said the records weren't relevant to the case. Now, this decision by Spalding is interesting since Lena's physician was the one who diagnosed her with sexual abuse. And conceivably, that diagnosis and the basis for that diagnosis which is the critical evidence in a child abuse criminal case, was in Lena's medical records. Nonetheless, Foster did the right thing by his client and asked of the records. The court reviewed them and said, nah, there's nothing there, so you don't get them. So the trial starts just six months after Jason is charged, and that's quick for any case to be tried in Montana, even criminal cases where speedy trial concerns are raised. But it looks like Jason and his attorney wanted to get the case over with. Leading up to trial, Lena's parents continued to pressure the community and confront Foster. They followed him when he was in Lewistown and had no problem confronting him in public. Foster expressed his concerns about Lena's parents' conduct to the judge, and Judge Spalding agreed that Lena's parents' actions were problematic. Judge Spalding went so far as to exclude Lena's parents from the courtroom until they testified. The next day, the prosecutor, Miss Adams, reported to Judge Spalding her concerns about Lena's mom. She told the court that Lena's mom purposefully interacted with a prospective juror in the woman's restroom during jury selection at the courthouse. This is really bad behavior from a mom who was absolutely desperate 
to get justice for her kid. So in response to this, Mr. Foster did what any good defense attorney would do and asked to extend Lena's parents' exclusion from the courthouse for the entirety of the trial. After interviewing a witness to the incident, the court granted the request, basing its decision mainly on Lena's dad's earlier confrontation with Judge Oldenburg and Lena's mom's encounter with potential jurors. However, the court went out of its way to ensure that Lena's parents could watch the trial remotely. Then, Mr. Foster renewed his motion to move the trial to another town, but the court denied the motion again, stating instead it would admonish the jurors not to talk about the case. Just two days later, law enforcement informed the court that the parties and the parties that Lena's dad, while viewing the trial remotely, said out loud that if the jury did not convict, he would, quote, take care of it himself. So extra security was provided to Jason. Two days later, law enforcement reported to the court that when Foster's car was at Jason's house, a large chunk of concrete had been thrown through the windshield. Foster, again, in properly defending his client, pleaded for the court to move the case to another town. He also asked for the judge to declare a mistrial as the antics of Lena's parents rendered a fair decision impossible. Judge Spaulding denied the motion. Foster again raised his concerns for Jason's kids and wife. Foster was clearly shaken and told the court he was not prepared to continue trying the case. Judge Spaulding was sympathetic and agreed he'd never experienced this kind of activity in any prior case and adjourned the trial until the following Monday. Trial resumed Monday. Lena, at five years old, testifies. She stated Jason used his hand to touch her privates and that his hand was outside of her privates, but in response to a leading question, she affirmed his hand had been inside her privates. Lena's doctor testified, stating her diagnosis was partially based on what Lena reported and that she could not state with medical certainty that Lena sustained injuries at the sleepover or rule out infection or self-touch as explanations. Lena's doctor explained that when Lena was two or three years old, she had a skin condition called molluscum contagiosum, an infection of small vesicles in her back thighs and buttocks. However, at the checkup two months before the incident, Lena's skin was clear. Lena's doctor further testified that Lena never had vaginal complaints or urinary tract symptoms. Mr. Foster, Jason's attorney, had planned to call Andrea, Jason's eldest daughter, to testify. He told the court that this was his intention, and then he ultimately decided against doing so. That's not terribly unusual. Often as a lawyer, you have a strategy that you change at the last minute. But with the pressures outside of the courtroom piling up, in retrospect, the basis for the stark change in strategy is worth questioning. Another court conference occurs to talk about security for Jason. Law enforcement said they had never seen anything like the antics currently occurring and community tensions were high. Both Jason and Foster were advised to wear bulletproof vests. Law enforcement told Jason and Foster to be vigilant as the situation with Lena's family was unpredictable. Foster was clearly a target. After the meeting at the courthouse, Foster had a rental car and checked into the Yogo Hotel to avoid detection. Yet when Foster went to the Yogo Hotel restaurant, who was he confronted by? Lena's parents. Think about this. Foster was just doing his job. And from all vantage points, he was doing exactly what he should have been doing in defense of his client. Criminal defense lawyers have the hardest job on the planet. 
They have to defend the Constitution even when they believe their client is guilty. They ensure a fair trial. They do not ensure the innocence of their clients. And even if their client is a worthless human being, criminal defense attorneys fight for the client's rights. I personally have no ability to defend somebody I think is guilty. I just can't do it. But criminal defense attorneys are able to rise above personal animus and to ensure that our constitutional rights are protected and convictions only occur from due process and a fair trial. So I don't know what Lena's parents had against Foster because he was just doing his job. I can see why they hated Jason, but to transfer their hate to Foster shows they were overwhelmed by vengeance. Back to the case. As prosecutors and defense attorneys do, mid-trial, the prosecutors offered a plea deal to Jason. Their offer was that Jason pleads guilty to sexual assault and not rape, which isn't a bad offer because the prosecution still gets a sex conviction, which is a win, and Jason pleads guilty to a charge that is not as bad as rape and has less consequences. Judge Spalding urged the parties to discuss the plea deal further. Foster met with Jason and his family. Jason was terrified he was going to be convicted by the jury. Jason's family said, if you didn't do it, though, you shouldn't plead guilty. But Jason, who had been staring down the barrel of 25 years to life sentence, decided to plead guilty to a charge that carries a sentence of up to 25 years. So he would cut his risk by more than half that he would die in prison. So why do people plead guilty even when they don't believe they are guilty? Risk management. It feels better to spend 10 years in prison versus life in prison on a wrongful conviction. Why do prosecutors offer plea deals that include pleading guilty to lesser offenses than those originally charged? Risk management. Gets criminals off the streets. You get them on paper. You get a conviction. You get them in the system. You can watch them. You know, on both sides of the aisle, when you come to a plea agreement, it's basically a contract where you eliminate your risk. You try to eliminate your risk on both sides, the risk of conviction by a jury of a higher sentence that could include a higher sentence. And on a prosecutor side, you get the conviction and you basically get them into the system because true criminals, it's cyclical. They always come back around again. So once they're in the system, generally speaking, they stay in the system and you just need to get them on paper and get them watched, essentially. So the parties let the court know in this case in Lewistown that Jason is pleading guilty to felony sexual assault and Jason would have to serve a minimum of 13 years and a maximum of 25 years in prison. So that's the deal they came up with. The prosecutor, Miss Adams, was anxious to wrap up the case because of the nature of the events outside the courtroom and high tensions between the families. Prosecutor Adams even asked about a late night change of plea hearing to avoid the tensions and antics by Lena's family and give Jason the chance to spend dinner with his family before being taken into custody. The court agreed to the late night change of plea at 8 p.m., and that's highly unusual. But they did it. They discussed how to secure the courthouse and dismiss the jury. Jason did change his plea at 8 p.m. He agreed his plea was voluntarily given, and he even apologized to Lena. After the hearing, Jason's attorney, Jeff Foster, drove back to the Yogo Hotel with a police escort. He then committed suicide. So Jason then got new counsel and asked to withdraw his guilty plea. The court agreed, and Judge Spaulding said Jason could withdraw his guilty plea because Foster was ineffective as his counsel. Judge Spaulding noted the following deficiencies in Foster's representation of Jason. One, telling the jury during the opening statement that they would hear testimony from Andrea, a critical defense witness, 
but later stipulating to her not testifying. Number two, not interviewing several critical prosecution witnesses. Three, failing to subpoena the victim's medical records and instead relying on the prosecution's representation that all the victim's records had been provided to the court. Number four, filing a motion to exclude the results of the DNA testing on Lena's pajama bottoms in spite of a report indicating the presence of DNA of at least two unknown male subjects, which would have cast doubt on Jason's guilt. And number five, not requesting DNA testing of other males with the means and opportunity to assault Lena. The court concluded that prejudice to Jason was properly presumed or alternatively Foster was clearly deficient and there was a reasonable probability that, but for Foster's errors, Jason would not have pleaded guilty and would have insisted on continuing with trial. Although the court primarily based its decision on ineffective assistance of counsel, it also based its decision on a, quote, pervasive air of fear surrounding the trial that had impacted the proceedings and Foster's performance, highlighting the incident of the concrete block thrown through Foster's windshield, as well as several alleged incidents of Lena's parents' threats, stalking, and confrontations. The court observed that these events objectively appeared to have a serious, deleterious effect on Foster, who appeared disheveled and overly anxious, sweating profusely, running his fingers through his hair, stammering, pacing, repeating himself, etc., This behavior was, from the court's perspective, very uncharacteristic of counsel and led the court to have serious doubts about his effectiveness at trial and up to and including the defendant's guilty plea. Similarly, the court noted Foster was uncharacteristically deficient on cross-examination and did not mitigate the harmful effects of witness testimony. Court also noted that Foster appeared indecisive on strategy decisions and described his demeanor after the concrete block incident and before the plea agreement was reached as follows. Counsel appeared visibly distraught and fearful for himself as well as the defendant and the defendant's family. His behavior became somewhat erratic. For example, the defense had made it known early on that they would be presenting a full defense, including evidence of the defendant's good character and would be calling numerous character witnesses in that regard. The defense also notified the court and counsel that it would be calling the defendant's wife and children to testify regarding the alleged assault. Then, suddenly and rather unexpectedly, in the midst of the trial, former counsel flatly told the court and counsel that the defense was abandoning its good character defense and would not be calling Jason's children to testify. A short while later, counsel returned from lunch and promptly announced once again that the defense would be presenting a full defense, including evidence of the defendant's good character. Mere moments later, the parties notified the court that they had reached a plea agreement. So then the case goes to the Supreme Court because the prosecutor said, "Uh, no, he can't withdraw his plea and get a new trial. The Supreme Court ultimately said, basically, we don't buy that Foster was ineffective. And I agree Jeff Foster was not ineffective at representing his client. I think he was shook incredibly, but as far as being ineffective during the course of the trial and the pre-proceedings, no way. Basically, there's no evidence that Foster did anything wrong. But the Supreme Court did allow Jason to withdraw his guilty plea based, quote, on the extreme events that occurred during the proceeding, 
In addition to the events that we've already discussed, other wacky events included Lena's dad's threat of suicide and discharge of a weapon, Lena's dad tailgating Jason, Jason's wife asking for a protective order against Lena's parents, Foster stating he feared for his safety to a mental health counselor, and Lena's parents' attempt to video record Jason's arrest. Because Foster was clearly adversely impacted by these events, so too was his client Jason. So then Jason gets to go back to square one in 2017. By this point, it's clear that Jason is broke because he now gets appointed a public defender to represent him. He paid three private attorneys and now he's on to a public defender. But instead of retrying the case, the prosecution and defense go to mediation. Well, mediation didn't occur until November of 2020, so over two years later, they end up in mediation. At mediation, Jason agrees to plead Alford to sexual assault, with the prosecution agreeing to recommend the court sentence Jason to four years in prison, followed by six years of probation. So this is dramatically different than the initial plea agreement that they had that mandated he spend 13 years in prison. This is not a mandate of four years in prison. It just says four years in prison, which in Montana means he could only do one year in prison under this plea agreement. But it's an Alford plea. So what's an Alford plea? Well, it's considered a guilty plea, but the defendant doesn't have to admit he's guilty of conduct. He just says, I didn't do it. I'm innocent. But the evidence presented by the prosecution will be likely to persuade a jury to find me guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So for sentencing purposes, it's considered a guilty plea, all the while the defendant gets to proclaim his innocence. This type of plea comes from a United States Supreme Court case called Alford versus North Carolina, where the Supreme Court said the defendant can enter such a plea when he concludes that his interests require a guilty plea and the record strongly indicates guilt. The court allowed the guilty plea with simultaneous protestation of innocence only because there was enough evidence to show that the prosecution had a strong case for conviction and the defendant was entering such a plea to avoid this possible sentencing. The court went on to note that even if the defendant could have shown he would not have entered a guilty plea but for the rationale of receiving a lesser sentence, the plea itself would not have been ruled invalid. Basically, you can do risk management as a defendant and say, oh, okay, if you give me a lesser charge that I'm pleading guilty to and a lesser sentence that I'm going to get with it, even though I'm going to say I'm innocent, I'll go ahead and take that deal and I have the right to take that deal. So in the Alfred case, as evidence existed that could have supported Alfred's conviction, the Supreme Court held that his guilty plea was allowable while the defendant himself still maintained that he was not guilty. By the way, Alfred died in prison in 1975. So that didn't really work out very well for him. But anyway, he set the standard for Alfred, please. So back to the case. Jason pleads Alfred and his attorney argues for a probationary sentence because the plea agreement only bound the prosecution to its recommendation. And that's not usual, but it's not unusual. Usually both parties are bound. But here they entered into a plea agreement where just the prosecution is bound to its recommendation of that four-year prison term. And they said that the defense could argue for any legal sentence available. And in Montana, probation and no jail time is legal for a sex offense. So what does Judge Spaulding do, this former prosecutor and tough-on-crime judge? Well, he gave Jason 10 years of probation and no fine. Jason doesn't even have to pay the cost of his public defender. So what does this all mean, Montana? 
Why would a seemingly tough-on-crime judge in the face of a defendant who has previously admitted to the crime and even apologized to the victim let the criminal off on probation? Did Judge Spaulding believe Lena's parents got their pound of flesh from foster suicide? From the torment Lena's parents caused Jason's attorney? Was he sending a message to parents of crime victims? Did he think Jason was, in fact, not guilty of the crime, despite the evidence? So who's the real loser in this case, Montana? Usually we focus on the crime victims and the trauma to them and their families. And sometimes we talk about whether the defendant in an Alfred plea is wrongly convicted, falling and who fell under the fear of the hammer of a long prison sentence. But here, folks, in this instance, the true tragedy is the death of an attorney who was simply doing his job. He was 33 years old when he died. Jeff was born November 12th, 1981 in Missoula, Montana to Rod and Karen Foster and was raised in Whitefish. He was a 2000 graduate from Whitefish High School and received his Bachelor of Arts from the University of Montana Western and his law degree from the University of Montana School of Law in 2008. He was a fifth generation Montanan whose family homesteaded in the Centennial Valley near Dillon. He was many things to many people, dad, husband, son, brother, elk slayer, super lawyer, and most of all, friend. He had a heart of gold and would give the shirt off his back to anyone in need. He fell in love with his beautiful wife when their eyes locked in Dillon, Montana in 2004, and they married in 2007. As they say, the rest is history. Together, they have three beautiful children. Kaylin, Grady, and Ella Grace. He was the most amazing father and husband anyone could ever imagine. When he wasn't conquering the legal world, he was busy spending time with his family and friends and enjoying everything that Montana had to offer. From the Big Hole Valley to the shores of Flathead Lake to the mountains of Libby, Jeff loved it all and was proud to call Montana home. We can only wonder if Jeff's despair over having his life and the lives of his family members threatened was just too much for him to bear. Could Jeff have ever envisioned that in doing his job, he would risk his life and the safety of his family? Is misplaced vengeance worth leaving a widow and three young children without a husband and father? How does the foster family get justice? Why didn't law enforcement do something to stop Lena's family from stalking Foster and Jason? What could they have done? Montana has a history of vigilante justice. If you were Lena's parents, would you have done what they did? Is ensuring criminal defendants receive a fair trial and due process without outside interference a fundamental Montana value? Or is it vigilante justice? Thank you for taking us with you on your journey today, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Montana Values Podcast. Become a sponsor of the show by going to our website, montanavaluespodcast.com, locating the sponsor page and clicking on the donate button. Subscribe to the show on Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Parler. Our handle is at MTValues. What's your favorite Montana value? How do you live it? Write to us. Our email address is montanavaluespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.